the mental health has like really come out into the open. Like it's risen up the agenda of payers and employers because it's unignorable. People are talking about it a lot more. Um, and what's more, um, people are unable to access the traditional forms of care. So it's accelerated digital interventions as an obvious way to provide care during, given the constraints of, of COVID. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. This is an episode you don't want to sleep on because today we're hosting Peter Hames, the co-founder and CEO of Big Health. Peter is also an NHS Innovation Fellow and holds a master's in experimental psychology from Oxford. As a former insomniac, Peter was frustrated by the limited treatments available for sleep difficulties. And so, inspired by his own success with cognitive behavioral therapy, he founded Big Health in order to deliver CBT-based insomnia treatment and mental health care to patients all around the world. Today, Big Health delivers fully virtual therapeutic for those struggling with their mental health. It is a 24-hour solution with the digital therapeutic Sleepio addressing sleep difficulties and daylights addressing daytime worry and anxiety. In this episode, we discuss pandemic era mental health, the far-reaching effects of insomnia, and how big health can offer a solution. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Yeah, excited to be here. I'm so excited. We had your talk uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I think having you in the podcast will be really interesting for a lot of our listeners to hear about your background. Um, shall we start? Sounds great. Yeah. So I thought it'd be good for a lot of our listeners to hear about your background and how that background has helped you prepare with this journey of you starting and running Big Health. No, absolutely. And you know, of course, you know, Big Health, digital therapeutics company focused on sleep and mental health, you know, really did start from a very personal place. You know, I uh, developed insomnia back when I was back in the UK uh, several years ago. Um, and for anyone that's experienced insomnia, you know, true sort of chronic uh, clinical level insomnia will know that it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty bad experience. And you know, the best way I would describe it is, is to ask the sort of rhetorical question, like name an area of your life that sleep doesn't affect. You know, and the truth is there isn't one. Like, you know, from your mood to your productivity to like, as a result, your relationships, you know, um, everything is, you know, is affected by it. And it can feel like, you know, you're you're completely trapped in it. And, and if it's very isolating, um, especially when you're awake through, through the night, like you feel like the, the only person who's awake on earth, you know, and... So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate that, um, that I had studied experimental psychology, uh, at undergrad. So I'm not a clinician, I'm not a trained psychologist, but I do know the science behind, uh, non-drug therapies for these problems, um, you know, including insomnia, anxiety, depression, predominant of which is cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, or, or CBT for sure. 
traditionally delivered by a human therapist. Uh, and, you know, I went to my doctor in the UK, my PCP, uh, my GP, um, very sort of uh, announced my self-diagnosis in a very self-satisfied way and uh, asked for a course of CBT. And the doctor promptly told me where to stick it uh, and prescribed me Ambien, prescribed me sleeping pills. And so whatever I did, that's all I could get was medications. And, you know, I knew from my degree, like, these are not uh, recommended or even effective for chronic insomnia. And yet, uh, that was all I could get access to. You know? And so eventually, you know, uh, out of desperation, I ended up self-administering a program of CBT uh, from a self-help book um, written by this world expert, this guy called Professor Colin Espy. Uh, and like any self-help book, chapter a week, you know, very manual process, very clunky. Uh, you have to photocopy out sleep diaries, like do math, you know, that's a very like, arduous process. But in just six weeks, I was totally cured, like totally better. And what do you think? Does it eradicate the root cause of the, or is just you know how to manage your sleep better? Yes, the way I would I would talk about it, and this is the way that you know the CBT, you know what, what the approach that CBT takes is to say, um, is that it it build, it rebuilds a healthy relationship with your sleep. And so it's not to say that you never have a bad night's sleep. Like, that would be unusual. If you didn't have the odd bad nights, you know, when you're stressed or something's on your mind or something's, you know, something's happened in your life that disrupts it, um, what it what it means is those, prob- those odd nights don't cascade and snowball into this huge self-feeding problem of insomnia. And, you know, it, it unlocks the vicious cycle that perpetuates the problem, you know, and anyone who's had insomnia will know, like, it's... Um, you know, you start to like, uh, like dread going to bed. Like the the very idea of going to sleep stresses you out uh, because you're ready. You're, you're sort of stealing yourself for another bad night, and that in itself makes it a lot less likely that you're going to get to sleep. And so in the morning, you know, like told you so, told you I wasn't going to go to sleep. I knew I was right, and it just reconfirms this this thought process. And so before long, you know, you you you, I, you get so used to being stressed in your bedroom your bedroom makes you stressed. <laughs> and so essentially, you know, the CBT works to kind of unpick and, ta- and, and you know, help you like uh, dissolve that vicious cycle and get back to a sort of normal, normal sleep relationship. Okay. So, so you, you so basically you cure yourself with this new yeah. treatment CBT based on your self-help book. And so what, what have you been what have you done so far besides, you know, you graduate from your psychology, you just kind of wandering around and not sleep? <laughs> yes, this was, this was um, you know, this was obviously like uh, many years after I completed my degree, but it was still in the back of my mind, you know, the, 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 the knowledge about CBT and, you know, that experience of, of you know, achieving you know, this magical experience of, uh, of using these techniques to overcome this problem that I, you know, had seemed to me completely insurmountable. Like, I, and I have a degree in this stuff, and I didn't know how to solve it. Um, so, applying CBT, which you know is effectively evidence-based common sense, right? Like, it's very practical, very like easy to understand, very easy to implement. Um, you know, felt like magic, right? And it kind of blew my mind. The mm-hmm. second reaction to it was, "This is totally insane." 
Like we have hundreds of millions of people across the world, you know, who are suffering from problems like I was, uh, like insomnia, anxiety, depression, for which we have these proven behavioral non-drug solutions like CBT. And yet no one can get it. All that anyone can get is drugs. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what sparked this thought, this idea of the only way that I can see to bridge that gap in need is to figure out a way to take these very effective techniques and fully automate them, right? So allow them to be as scalable and consistent as drugs by delivering it in a way that is pure software. Like, so no humans Mm -hmm. involved, like no books involved, something that can scale um, to the level of need that, that we see out there in the population. And so I then, having had that epiphany, rang up the guy that wrote the book and cured me, this guy called Professor mm-hmm. Colin Espy, uh, put on a suit, uh, got on a plane. Uh, he lives up in Glasgow. Um, and, you know, we became co-founders, like, told him mm-hmm. about the idea. And, you know, Colin and I have really built the company together. Like, he's, you know, very like, world-renowned clinical mm-hmm. expert, 30, 40 years of clinical research experience hundreds of clinical trial papers published and it's been a really amazing partnership and like blending of our respective uh skills and experiences to, to get the big health where it is today but what were you doing before like in between your you graduate from your psychology and then you have this epiphany you must have done something I, I like or, to say, or I, you just like get out from college. You cannot sleep, and then I want to start oh, no. a company. No, this was there was a, a winding road. Like I, I'd say, I have the resume resume of a lunatic. Like it doesn't make much a huge amount of sense, apart from maybe in retrospect. And you know, so I you know I had done everything from like working in communication strategy, like within like advertising, uh, through to uh, working in a karaoke business. So Interesting. Can, what, what is that karaoke own. business? So you can uh, you can draw your own sort of connections between you know karaoke and insomnia. I'll let you uh, draw those. <laughs> but the um, so you know the, in, in the more serious way of describing that is I worked for um, uh, a lady called Martha Lane Fox. Um, okay. In the UK. Uh, so she is very famous in the UK as one of the leading you know tech entrepreneurs. Um, founded lastminute.com in the UK and is now Baroness, like, uh, and sort of the, the tech czar in the UK. And, um, yeah, worked with her on building one of her companies. And that's where I got a lot of the knowledge and skills around, like, how to, um, how to think about building technology, building, you know, engineering teams, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and it was actually while working for her that I did develop insomnia and, uh, and obviously the rest is history. Okay, so that makes sense. So it's not like you just woke up one day after you could not sleep and cure yourself. I said, okay, um, so that's interesting. So when you go uh, reach, uh, maybe we get to uh, for us to hear about your journey about the big health. Uh, when you have that vision, you went to convince your uh, the clinical psychologist Colin Espy to join you. Uh, what what was what what were you asking him? Like, what is the vision you're selling him? Totally. I I mean, I remember very vividly, uh, you know, the day that I first called him, and I just cold called him, right? So, like, I it was on my lunch break. I was in London, like walking around like a freezing, like square in London because I wanted to, I'd take the calls sort of out the office, and you know, very tentatively, it was like you know, cold, like rang the number. He picked up. I was like, oh, Professor Espy, it's, uh, you don't know me, but my name is Peter Haynes. I used your book. It cured me. 
she's got this idea, like, that, you know, I think we can get this to more people. And he was like, do you know how many of, of these calls I get a week? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, really dismissive. And like, I had to therefore, like, you know, he's, he's a very no-nonsense Scottish, uh, amazingly, obviously, warm and uh, brilliant human, but, you know, it's, it's certainly no-nonsense and direct. And so I actually, originally, you know, the idea was a bit broader. It was just a general insight that, um, you know, this is, you know, insomnia sufferers as a group of people are really underserved uh, and, you know, and really, you know, there's a huge need there for us to provide them with better, you know, provide people with better solutions. Um, you know, I, we immediately had a meeting of minds as soon as I landed in. I'm a big fan of like, uh, it's different now in COVID, but the value... But what did you tell him? And he said, like, I got a lot of this kind of phone call in a week. Like, you must have convinced him for him to let you fly in to it, meet with him. Um, it was all about, <laughs> it's akin to like the overarching principle of like a sales process. I was like, all I wanted was to get that meeting with him. So like, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I was like, let me just come up and see you. And like, we can talk about it. And this is what I was saying that like, I think there's a, it's different now post COVID, but in general, I would say that get on the plane, like, uh, the value of, of what that shows in terms of your, how serious you are and, you know, and, and obviously makes it easy for the other person, but, you know, to be able to show that this is like, all right, I'm going to take the effort to, you know, fly over and to, to see you and talk about it, I think carries a lot of weight. And he picked me up from the airport and even in the drive from there to his his lab or his house, um, you know, very quickly we realized that we it was a meeting of minds and we shared a lot of values and motivations both from both sides. You know, it was very personal motivation. I think he saw the sincerity of that. Um, and it kind of went from there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's exciting. That's great. That, you know, that first phone call and then, uh, it worked out and, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what is your North star for the big health and then what is it that the technology that you're doing to solve that particular problem? Yeah, so you know, our purpose at Big Health is to help millions back to good mental health. You know, no asterisk, no small print. Like that is the north star of, of the of the business, and, and every decision we make as an organization has to get us closer to that goal in a straight line. Um, and you know, I say it like a scratch record at the start of every team meeting. Like our purpose is to help millions back to good mental health. I'd be amazed if anyone in the company can't recite that <laughs> word for word. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I found that to be, uh, you know, a very, very, uh, really effective way to keep everyone, you know, keep myself and everyone else focused. You know, the, the, I think the biggest risk, especially in an area as complex as healthcare is actually that you sort of lose sight and get distracted, that you end up getting pulled in a certain direction, given, you know, barriers and constraints. And so therefore constantly being able to snap back up and go, hang on, what are we optimizing for here? We're optimizing for helping many, 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 many people as rapidly as possible is a really helpful way to reprioritize, you know, whenever you whenever you get stuck. And so the technology that you developed, you mentioned earlier about basically converting a lot of the manual whatever that's on that book and then convert it into a user-friendly software interface. I don't want to explain it because I think you would do, yeah. you would do a better job in explaining it than me. Yeah. So we, you know, so yeah, the approach is to, you know, what we've focused on is building these like pure software, fully automated, but clinically rigorous 
uh, digital therapeutic programs uh, for mental health. And that involves, you know, looking at the, uh, the science behind what is effective for human-delivered therapy, uh, but not just like copy and paste, like translate it into a digital context. But, um, but you know, think very, very sort of creatively about like, how do we take the active ingredients here and like transform it and translate it into a format that's going to be very effective, delivered, you know, by your phone uh, in a pure digital, pure digital uh, form. And so, um, you know, we have two products, CPO and Daylight. CPO is focused on insomnia, Daylight on worry and anxiety, um, both very powerfully evidence-based. So we've conducted, you know, 13 randomized control trials now on our actual products. And those, those data show that our effectiveness is very high. So over 70% remission rates for both products, um, even though there's no humans involved whatsoever. Um, and, you know, a big piece of, of, you know, beyond that is actually how we get it in people's hands. And so working with the pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs to deliver our solutions as, uh, you know, non-drug alternatives for mental health, um, you know, via a lot of the same channels um, that are used uh, for other therapeutics. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. Yeah, one of the things that uh, you you mentioned that you have give um, work with uh, CBS to try to deploy more of your technology to more people. Can you share with us your journey in getting your first big account? Yeah, totally. So as you say, like we today we work through um, we work through CBS Health is a, is one of our key partners. Um, and, you know, they're obviously a huge pharmacy benefit manager, you know, 100 million covered lives. Um, and, you know, it's it's a really productive way for us to reduce the barriers associated with employers uh, and other health plans being able to, like, offer our products to their populations. Um, but as you say, like, where it all began was much more basic. So, uh, you know, we had, I should say, actually, I mean, the spirit of the story, like, we had, you know, there's a whole series of different chapters to, to, to Big Health as a, as a company. You know, initially, after that conversation with Colin in, in the UK, we bootstrapped for a long time. Like, to, like it was just basically us work, running off vapors, working with money we'd save personally to develop the first version of the product um, with a very, very lean team um, and to get the first clinical evidence. And that was all done literally without having raised any money whatsoever. Um, we tried taking it out to market, like via retail in the UK. That was one of our first first uh, attempts to go. How do we actually commercialize this and get it into the hands of people who need it? So Boots, the chemist, a big pharmacy chain in the UK, we had a partnership with them. It was we created literally physical box products that we put on on shelf next to the sleeping pills in like a hundred stores, <laughs> and uh, and it didn't work, <laughs> and so. You know, uh, we learned a lot from that um, and spent, you know, a good few years in the UK trying and failing to find a way 
to uh, you know to make this very effective product commercially successful. And what did you learn that why it did not work? Is it because you put it next to the sleeping pill, and sleeping pill seems to be like you just pop it in and then you sleep? It's um, well, I was you know this is obviously many years ago now, and so I do think that there was a it was a very different it was a very different context in terms of the behaviors that people were used to following. Um, in terms of now, it's obviously a lot more natural for people to seek health, health you know, their health care through the through the internet um, and through technology enabled uh, methods. So I think back then it was um, partly that that there was uh, it was the idea it was ahead of its time to some extent. Like it's you know now is really the moment where we're seeing this really uh, coming into its own. You know, all it took was a global pandemic, uh, but the. But, you know, and so I think the reasons it didn't work were numerous. Uh, it taught me a lot about the importance of it being a reimbursed product. You know, so w- with it being consumer paid, um, it created some misaligned incentives, actually, whereby, you know, the great beauty of our approach is, is that we can deliver, um, you know, really good sustained health very, very quickly. Like it can be something where we're, you know, given it CBT, a short number of weeks, and you can be very long-term healthy again. And so, you know, the traditional consumer models about, like, you know, doing a subscription model where you're, try- you know, essentially trying to keep someone engaged in the treatment for months or years is very inconsistent with what I saw as the benefit of the intervention, which is we, we want to be aligned in getting you healthy as quickly as possible. And so I realized, you know, through that experience that our customer is not actually the end patient or user, it's whoever economically benefits from that person being healthy as quickly as possible. And that, that, that entity is actually whoever pays for their healthcare costs. So in the UK, it's the NHS. In the US, as we know, it's employers, it's health plans. And that's really what informed when we came to the US five, six years ago. It really gave us the conviction to go, we should be striving for this to be a, a reimbursed product, like a, you know, akin to other therapeutics, uh, and start on that path. It's kind of interesting you're saying that the patient, you would think the patients want to get better as soon as possible. Yet you mentioned the payers has a lot more interest to get the patient to feel better sooner. How is that? It seems kind of odd. Oh, yeah. What I mean is, is that, um, you know, I feel we've seen some great success stories in the consumer, say, at least consumer wellness space of where, um, you know, subscription models have been very effective, you know, where the, a small amount of money over a very long period of time, right, where, you know, it could be, I don't know, like a Headspace or a Calm, like these more consumer-focused apps um, have, have been very successful in that way. The challenge is, is that if you imagine, you know, what is my incentive, if, if I'm that solution, what are, what are my incentives? Like my incentives are for you to stick around as long as possible because I want to collect as much subscription revenue from you as possible. And if this is a sort of ongoing support, that might be fine. But mm-hmm. our, the beauty of CBT is, is that we deliver outcomes very quickly. Like, you know, in a very short number of weeks, we can get you healthy for years. And so, like, the problem is, is that though you can see how those two incentives fight against each other, like, I don't want to be driven economically to try to addict people mm-hmm. to a service. Like that's obviously what's wrong with healthcare is is there's too many incentives, economic incentives to deliver maximum treatment rather than mm-hmm. the minimum treatment necessary to get someone healthy. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's really interesting. Um, 
one of the things that I thought was really interesting, like you mentioned it earlier about evidence-based, that you built that clinical evidence since the very beginning. And can you tell us more about that and why it's so important to a lot of the things that you do at the Big Health? In terms of clinical evidence? Yeah. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned, like Colin takes all the credit for this. You know, my co-founder, Professor SB, you know, it was really initially, you know, his drive, which, um, you know, I, which, you know, and his like experience and perspective, which led us to investing in clinical, clinical evidence. So it comes from initially more of a bottom-up values perspective rather than anything else. Like it's just the right thing to do, right? So if we're going to deliver care, that is, you know, is a true therapeutic, we need to be making sure that we're collecting the data to show that it's effective and safe as, as any other as any other uh, type of therapeutic. And so, you know, we did our first placebo group randomized control trial way back before we raised money. Like that was like one of the first things that we did, um, which to this day is like, you know, leads the field in terms of how rigorous the clinical evaluation is. Um, and since then, that clinical evidence base has grown exponentially. So we now have over 60 publications, like I say, 13 randomized control trials. A fact that still blows my mind, more participants have taken part in controlled studies of Sleepio than have ever taken part in studies of Ambien mm-hmm. by, by a very long way. And, you know, the, the value of that is that, you know, beyond the sort of ethical reasons for doing it, in that we should only be doing things that work and are safe, um, is is that in terms of that reimbursement coverage, it's incredibly powerful, right? So like chief medical officers, like other decision makers and payers, you know, can see with their own eyes, like, yes, this thing is effective and yes, it saves money. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, you you kind of get the clinical evidence even when you don't have the money. Oftentimes, a lot of the entrepreneurs are saying, well, we need the money in order for us to build that clinical evidence. How do you do that without I, the money? Yeah, and I've heard that a lot as well. And, the, the, you know, there's definitely, there's no shortage of ways to spend a lot of money collecting clinical evidence. <laughs> like, it's, you know, uh, that's certainly true. What, um, you know, what I would say is, is that uh, we are living proof that it's possible to collect a lot of evidence without spending a lot of money. There's very high-quality clinical evidence um, published in the leading journals like JAMA, Lancet Psychiatry, and so forth. Um, and the key to that is, is to make sure that clinical and research is really central to what you do from the start. So I had the great benefit of Colin as a co-founder, where given his global reputation, given he, his ability to uh, you know, structure and like conduct research himself, like obviously in collaboration with other independent researchers, it was it was how we got the ball rolling. You know, so, you know, I think that with digital particularly, where, you know, recruitment can be very efficient, like it doesn't require, you know, huge expenses of kind of, uh, you know, doing things with brick and mortar. It can all be done online and, and, and people can be randomized very efficiently. Like it is feasible to do very high quality research very, very um, cost effectively. And then the other thing I would say is, is that by showing that like, um, by showing that you are really serious about uh, supporting science, um, it means that, that that you open yourself up to the, cl- the clinical community in general wanting to collaborate with you. And so, like I, what I would say is, is that anyone who's out there who has you know an entrepreneur who's not a clinician who has a product that they think is really promising, 
uh, or idea that's promising, I can promise you that there are multiple researchers out there in your area who already probably have funding from independent sources, like NIH, other sources, who are looking for like good quality in, in interventions to use in their research. Like, and so I, I think the key is to like really just, it's very simple, like try and find partners who really know their stuff on the clinical research side, and they will be able to find those, that funding and that, that, those researchers um, who will help support the, you know, the clinical research program. You mentioned earlier about how the pandemic propelled the big health, like everybody become more serious about the mental health. Why is that? Yeah, um, I think... Or everybody everybody becomes so stressed out and everybody starts to have mental issues. Yes, I mean, it's partly that, but I think it's, um, you know, we've seen a couple of things happen over the last like 12, 18 months. Um the, yeah, I mean, the pandemic is obviously the key catalyst here, which is it has been a source of exceptional stress for, you know, huge numbers, portions of the population. Um, it's also made it harder for people to access care, you know, effectively. And so, you know, these, the confluence of those two points means that uh, the mental health has like already come out into the open. Like it's risen up the agenda of payers and employers because, it's unignorable. People are talking about it a lot more. Um, and what's more, um, people are unable to access the traditional forms of care. So it's accelerated digital interventions as an obvious way to provide care during, given the constraints of, of COVID. So like the problem's always been there. Like it's never like, you know, we are seeing more people with mental health problems, but the majority of the problem has always been the case. Uh, it's just that now it's sort of opened Pandora's box and no one can ignore it. And you see a lot more bad news in the news, in the media, probably increased the anxiety of more and more people. I'm just totally theorizing based on what I see. I don't have any real data to back it up. Um, I, um, the last, I have two last questions. Uh, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I want to know, like, what are your three biggest challenges that you have overcome in your life and also during your time as a founder and a CEO of a Big Hill? It's mm, a great question. I might sort of in no particular order, but um, I, I, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll focus on, on Big Health because uh, I think it's probably most directly relevant here, I think. Um, but, you know, I would say, you know, in retrospect, and hindsight is twenty twenty. like, you know, we were 10 years early with this idea. And, you know, it's been, you know, I required an enormous amount of persistence to kind of, you know, to get to a point where now suddenly, like the time is now, like the moment is now for this to, you know, it's, it's finally the sort of world is in, has caught up to a place where, where these digital first interventions um you know, most so apparently makes sense. I'm grateful at one level because it gave us that time to build the clinical evidence base, to gain the conviction around the approach and make sure that we, we had the foundations in place, you know, that were necessary to do something like this. But the challenges were, I mean, there were new, there have been numerous times where by all rights, you know, the company, you know, we should have died as a company. <laughs> like, and, and I think that this is, you know, this is obviously not uh, specific to us, but I think is, um, you know, I can, I, 
you know, I remember us like early on, like getting very close to striking a partnership with a big corporation and us having no funding. Uh, but, you know, putting all our chips on that partnership and like, you know, really putting our shoulder behind it. And it was, you know, it looked amazing. And this company was going to like distribute our products and like, you know, give us loads of marketing money and all the rest of it. And then at the 11th hour, you know, they pulled out. And, you know, I was left with like, you know, at the time, like tens of thousands of dollars of like legal fees that I didn't have the money to pay, like didn't exist. And so, you know, um, being able to navigate from that situation, a situation like that, where like we're technically insolvent, you know, um, to be able to keep going, I think is are the key sort of experiences that, um, that you know, will, I, I think what you'll find common in any, you know, success story is the um, you know, in that instance, like I'd never raised investment before, but I was like, I need some money. <laughs> and so I sort of, you know, emailed everyone I knew and said, do you know any rich people? <laughs> <'Cause I need laughs> money. And then went and talked to them all. And, you know, a lot of them were like, no, it's not really how it works, but you should talk to an investor. Like, let me introduce you to one of my friends. And like, and so, you know, you follow the chain and eventually you find someone who's, you know, who believes in it, who's willing to invest and, and give you some money. And that's how we raise our first money. So, like, um, you know, it's there's been numerous occasions like that through the history of Big Health where the best way, what the phrase I use is like staring into the abyss. Well, like I think that to be successful as a founder, particularly in, a, in an area that is as complex and challenging and potentially slow moving as healthcare, is you need to be able to confront situations like that. Like, like I say, look into the abyss where you genuinely have no idea how you're going to navigate it and just keep walking. Like and like that, I honestly believe that like persistence is the primary um, ca- characteristic or quality that differentiates success from failure. Um, certainly in this domain, right of of, of overall healthcare. Well, that, well, that well, thank you so much for your time, and I really enjoy having uh, our conversation. Likewise, a pleasure to speak. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.